0: Why did Harry Truman like to say, the buck stops here? Does God hold a child responsible for the sins of his parents? And are some people more genetically predisposed to certain sins? And if so, does that get them off the hook? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, my goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, and I'm a licensed minister and also a licensed foster parent. We've helped raise um, about 10 kids over the time that we've been foster parents. There's been some that stayed for weeks, some for months, some for years. Not to mention, I have my own biological kid. So you might say I've had a little bit of parenting experience. And there's one particular chapter of the Bible that's really helped me a lot in my parenting. And that's Ezekiel 18. As a parent, I would have talks with the kids sometimes about the subject of personal responsibility. There were a lot of things in life that we could not control. Every kid in foster care was facing a life situation that was really seemed 100% out of their control. But, regardless of how much things seem to be spinning out of control, there will always be some things that are in our control. And if we never take responsibility for the things that we can control, then our situation will never improve. And Ezekiel 18 drives that point home. This is my favorite chapter in the whole book of Ezekiel, actually. It's, it's not just a lesson for foster kids. It's a lesson for all of us. Each one of us needs to learn this. I mean, it might seem... Like it's the most obvious truth in 2023 America. We have this Western individualism mindset. And so this seems like an obvious thing. And yet over the past decade or two, especially, we have made taking responsibility for our actions a lesson that I think Americans need to learn more than ever. We're at chapter 18 of Ezekiel, so we're over a third of the way through the book. Um, We're approaching the halfway point. But since it's been a while, I thought I would just recap the history of this book. Ezekiel is the story of Babylon's invasion of Israel. And Actually, let me back up for a second. Here's why I'm saying this. I was just kind of thinking this week, if I were introducing the book of Ezekiel to someone for the first time, now that I've really kind of got to dig through it slowly, um, how would I describe it to somebody? Like, what would I say this is— you know, how would I just explain to someone, you know, a person on the street, a random person, what this book is all about? So here's what I thought I would say. Ezekiel's the story of Babylon's invasion of Israel, but this was a very slow invasion. It lasted almost 20 years. And so I know we might think of an invasion as kind of like an, a really fast thing, an overnight thing. That is how some invasions work. You know, if you remember like when Russia invaded Ukraine last year, within three or four days... They were halfway across the country. So we think of an invasion as kind of like a really quick thing sometimes. This was a slow invasion. It was 19 years, to be precise. And during that 19-year span, there were three major attacks. And it was really, I mean, you can kind of say it was over after the first attack. Israel lost her king. Um, but ba- Babylon was going to kind of let him just just let him be. Um, but Israel wouldn't <laughs> settle down. Uh, and just accept their new situation. So there was a second attack. In that second attack, 10,000 people were taken captive, and that includes Ezekiel himself. Um, so he's writing as a captive who's already been taken to Babylon. Then in the in the final attack, and that's coming soon in the story of Ezekiel, uh, in that final attack, that's when Jerusalem itself is just going to be ransacked. And so what's going on over this 19-year period from the first attack to the last attack. Well, nationally, the country was in a period of decline. Israel didn't just fall overnight. It was a slow and steady decline. And it kind of reminds me just a lot of America. I know, you know, we're told not to read too much of what we're reading into the Bible into our present situation, but it's always my goal to take what we're reading and, and do try to take modern applications from it you know as much as possible and ezekiel is a really great book to do that in particular when it comes to the story of america that we ourselves are also it seems in a period of decline and so um i've just found a lot of parallels as we've been going through it uh spiritually so i said nationally the country was in decline but spiritually the decline of israel had been going on for a very long time for almost 100 years Um, israel's fall Was not just because of the sins of the current generation, but they're also falling because of the accumulating sin of the past several generations at the time of Ezekiel being written. So because of that, because they could say, well, we're not just falling because of our own sins, we're falling because, you know, we've been heading this direction for a long time, that could easily cause an Israelite to say, well, if Israel falls, it's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my grandparents' fault. It was set in stone before I was born. It doesn't even matter what I do, it's going to fall. That mindset would still be incorrect, as this chapter is actually going to make clear. We can't blame our problems on our our parents or on past generations. I mean, yes, some things happened that were out of our control, but we also have to take responsibility for what we do control. And so if you you haven't got your Bible yet, flip it open to Ezekiel 18, and we're going to start here at verse number 1. The word of the Lord came to me, "What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Our fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge." As I live declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. So there is this common saying in Israel in those days. They would say, "The fathers have eaten sour cre- grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge." Um, and that was common enough. There's actually a cross-reference for that in Jeremiah 31. Um, it was a common enough saying that there was another prophet who also dealt with it. And, and what does it mean? It, it's a saying that means, my parents made my bed, and now I have to lie in it. It's a way of saying, I am paying for the sins of my fathers. And God says, we're not going to use that phrase anymore, because there's not going to be any passing the buck. You can't just blame your parents. Even if they did do some bad stuff and set society in the direction it's going, but you can't just blame them for everything. And why? Well, because then you came along, and you had the opportunity to right their wrongs, and you didn't. You weren't doomed to go forward in the path that they set. You weren't condemned to walk the path that they did. You had a choice in the direction you wanted your society to go, and you chose to stay on that trajectory. And and not every kid does that, but you did, and so you'll pay for your own sins. That's what God is really wanting to say in this chapter. It gets a little harsher than that. He says, your parents are in hell today— for their sins, and soon you're going to be down there with them if you don't change your path. But you do have a choice, and everyone always has a choice. If you're still breathing air, you still have a choice. And that's the warning. That's where God goes in this chapter. That's what this chapter is all about. So it's a pretty heavy idea today <laughs> to open up this chapter, <laughs> and we're not done yet. So anyway, we'll keep re- we're will keep. we going to get through, I think, 20 verses today. Uh, this chapter has uh, 32 verses. So we're not going to finish it all today uh, because as I said this is my favorite chapter and I want to I want to go through it at the pace that it deserves. Let's read verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine, the soul who sins shall die. So God affirms right here that he deals with each individual person on an individual basis. And verse 4 is so vital To understanding this chapter of Ezekiel 18, I think of verse 4 as the verse that kind of gives us our glossary of terms as we go through this whole passage. Okay, so let's talk about the words that it used right here. It said, All souls are mine. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means God has a personal relationship and personal interaction with every single person out there. He doesn't go through another human to deal with you, He doesn't go through your parents to get to you, okay? He doesn't have to go through, as we talked about last time, um, you don't have have to go through Mary or some so-called saint to deal with you. God deals with each person on a one-to-one basis. When you die and when you stand before God, you can't say, well, I was a part of this country. Well, I was a part of this group. Well, but my parents, but my parents. No, it doesn't work that way. God's going to deal with your parents and God will deal with you. And you can't just stand behind them and say, "Well, everything you know that I had to deal with it is because of them. You can't do that, and I don't want to sound uncharitable okay i i mean some I know some people listening, perhaps you had horrific parents, um and I don't want to sound uncharitable to you. I mean, I was talking to someone just recently who told me some stories of what her mother used to do to her, like literally tortured her with with cigarettes and um like burning them on her and I mean, I was listening to that story, and uh, you know. Breaks my heart. Um, I was listening to another podcast recently. The host was talking about a time that I don't know what he was doing, getting ready for school. He made his his mom mad, and she poured his oatmeal in his hair, like literally. She sent him to school with dried oatmeal in his hair. And so I'm I'm you know there are some really crummy parents out there. Okay, and I I just want to I want you to know I get that. I'm not denying that whatsoever, and I'm not denying that their decisions can deeply, deeply affect you and kind of set the course for your life, even years later as an adult, okay? Personally, I had great parents. I mean, no parent no parent is perfect. Everybody has ways that they were affected by their parents' mistakes, you know, no matter how wonderful your parents were. I had it about as good as, you know, somebody can get. And um, I don't want to sound uncharitable to, to people today who didn't have that experience, okay? But here's what I want us to all know. At some point... We have to own our own decisions. We have to own our circumstances. Because the average person lives for 70 or 80 years on this earth. And you're only with your parents for 18 of those years. After 18 years, you know, for 18 years, you're kind of stuck with them and they're kind of stuck with you. But after that, the way that you live is your choice. You know, you might stay with your parents a few years after you're 18. That's totally fine. But here's what I'm saying. That's your choice. So you just have to own it, okay? Are people trampling all over your life? People not respecting your time? People are taking advantage of you? Um, you know, we can say, is it their fault for being inconsiderate? Sure. But is it also your fault because you're not establishing boundaries? Yeah. So what I'm saying today is take responsibility. Okay, and I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because we haven't even got really into those verses that say this yet. Um, but what is God saying? In the, okay, we just read verse 4. God is saying, the soul who sins shall die. That means your soul that's between you and God. So you don't get to go to Judgment Day and tell God, well, it was my parents, my parents, my parents, my grandparents, my country, my family history. You can't do that. Those things are out of your control. So you don't have to answer to God for those things. That, you know, let that take a relief off of you. If you did grow up with, with some crummy parents and they did some, some terrible things to you, you know, you, when you meet God someday, that's not he's not blaming you for that. That's not your fault. It's not what they did to you is not your fault. But we do have to answer for what we did with what was in our control. Okay, what did you do with what God put in your control? There's a phrase that we often um, apply to salvation— Uh, We say, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. I love that phrase. Because what does it mean? It means, I am a child of God. I'm not... God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. So, I am God's child. My parents' relationship with God, it has no bearing on my relationship with God. You know, for good or for bad. Uh, You know, I can't ride my parents' or my grandparents' coattails into heaven. It wouldn't matter if your parents were... If your dad was Billy Graham... That wouldn't matter. You can't use that as a ticket to heaven. Every person has to have their own individual relationship with God. And the end of that verse, it says, the soul who sins shall die. And that's a phrase that we need to understand if we're going to understand the whole rest of the chapter. What does it mean that the soul who sins shall die? Well, a soul is a person, okay? And, And why is it talking about a soul here when it's referring to people? Well, I, you know, as opposed to saying our body or just a, referring to people in general, I think what it's trying to do is get us to think in eternal terms, okay? Because, you know, we we all know that our soul is going to be something that exists forever. So think in, in eternal terms in this chapter, okay? So it said, the soul who sins shall die. What does it mean whenever it says sins? That's, a, you know, that might seem a little vague at first because everybody sins, right? <laughs> does that mean everybody just drops dead? No, Well, no, not necessarily. What's this talking about? It's talking about a person who lives in sin and lives in rebellion to God. Okay, everyone sins, but when this chapter is talking about a person who sins, what it's talking about is a person who's living in rebellion to God. And what does it say happens to them? Well, it says they shall die. Now, again, that's a little vague at first because it's like, well, wait, doesn't everybody die? Well, yeah, at some point, everybody is going to die. But this chapter is is not talking about our physical death, whenever it talks about dying. What it's talking about is your spiritual death. It's talking about going to hell. It's talking about being permanently cut off from God. So as you read this chapter, you got to remember this, okay? As it talks about dying, yeah, everybody dies. But if you're saved, you have eternal life. So when this chapter talks about how the soul who sins will die... It's not threatening you with a physical death, because everyone's going to experience that anyway. What it's warning you about is eternal death if you die while living in rebellion to God. So, verse 4, you got to understand that, really. To That's why I laid all that out there. We won't spend this long on every verse <laughs> as we go, but it gives us the glossary for understanding this whole chapter. So, now that we've defined our terms, now it's going to give us three case studies— to help us understand this concept, this ethic that God is teaching us about in Ezekiel 18. So we'll read verses 5 through 9 here. That's case study number one. So I'm just going to read it. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, Gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend it interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous, he shall surely live, declares the Lord God. So it says, if a man is righteous, it says he will live. And it gave a whole list of the righteous actions of a person who's righteous. (laughs) And this is how you know he's righteous, because he does all these things, okay? Righteous means a person who is saved, right? We know from New Testament language, when you're made righteous in God's sight, then you are made pure, you're saved. So how can we know whether someone is saved? Well, this verse is saying, just like what Jesus said, look at the fruit. Are they living a righteous life? You know, here's the, here's the criteria for that. Are they being generous? Are they controlling themselves sexually? Are they honest? Are they following the Bible? If they're doing all those things, that's a sign that it is a truly saved person that you're dealing with, okay? And God says, for such a person, he shall live. And what does live mean? Okay, well, just remember what it meant when we were defining what it means in this chapter to die. It means to go to hell. God says, a righteous man shall live. That means he'll go to heaven. It's not talking about your physical life, okay? Because everyone does physically die, no matter how good you are. Um, Everybody dies, and, it, and it's not saying you just live longer if you're a righteous person. What it's saying here is you have eternal life, okay? You die, and you go to heaven, living forever in the presence of God. So, that's that's case study number one. A person who lives a righteous life, and eventually dies and goes to heaven. So, that's pretty simple, right? <laughs> I'm not teaching salvation by works. In fact, I, I could see that being an issue if someone reading this chapter. The next episode is going to deal with that question. So, I'm not... I'm just not dealing with it this time. I'm not... I'm not trying to slip in some heresy, okay? (laughs) So don't worry, but we'll deal with that later on. Right now, we're just taking a more kind of a holistic approach to salvation. Your works don't save you, but when you get saved, you do good works. And just, you know, keep that in mind as we're talking about this is how you know you're dealing with a righteous person. So don't get hung up on that. We'll address that in the future. Ezekiel 18, 10 through 13 is case study number two. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends it interest, and takes profit. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. So the second case is dealing with someone who lived an unrighteous life. And it goes through a list of the sinful actions. Um, and I'm not going to go through them one by one, you know, explaining why each of these actions are unrighteous and why the righteous actions were righteous. I think that's kind of obvious. If you want to look at probably the best cross-reference for that, go back to Leviticus chapter 17 through 20. I think that's what Ezekiel's drawing on more than anything right here is those those that system of ethics that's laid out at that point in Leviticus. So if you, want, if you want explanations of why these things are right or wrong, go back there. The, the key thing to understanding case study number two here, we're not just talking about a random unrighteous guy. We're talking about an unrighteous son to the righteous man from case study number one. Okay? The man in case two is the son of the man in case one. And it's saying that the son of the righteous man, he is not just going to be automatically righteous just because his dad is. The son still has to make his own choices. He has to live out his own relationship with God. Now, why? Well, it's like we were saying before, God has no grandchildren. We're each going to be responsible for ourselves. My dog is just about 20 feet away from me right now, and he's snoring. And so if you hear that, I don't know if it's coming through the microphone or not. If you do, (laughs) there you go. That's what it is. I'm not going to I'm not going to wake him up. If he wants to sleep, I'm just going to let him sleep. He's a pug. They snore loud. So we're we're all just going to deal with it today. Hopefully it's not coming through, but but there you go. Case study number 3. And this this is found next in Ezekiel 18 verses 14 through 18. Okay? So we'll pick up at verse 14 here. Read Basically, it's probably the next paragraph, you know, if you're reading in your Bible along with me. Each of these cases is is broken up into paragraphs. So, here's the next one. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So case 3 deals with the son of the man in case 2. Okay, so this is the grandson of the man in case 1. Case 3 is a righteous man. Okay, we're back to dealing with a righteous man here. It says he looked at what his dad was doing up there in case study number 2. And he doesn't want to live that way. He doesn't want to live a selfish life. He wants to live a good life because he's a good man. So God says he's going to go to heaven. He's not going to spiritually die. Okay? And I'll, I'll even throw in another note here. If you're a longtime listener of this podcast, um, Ezekiel uses his favorite word here to describe idols in verse 15. He calls them crap gods. <laughs> and if that sounds a little weird or or like irreverent, I'm just telling you, this is what Ezekiel called it if you look in the Hebrew. We talked about this background, I think, uh, somewhere in the lesson around Ezekiel 8. Um, It said, uh, this is how Ezekiel talks about a, a righteous or an unrighteous person, okay? This is how he talked about the worthlessness and the filth of the idols. He called them crap gods. An unrighteous man worships the crap gods, but a righteous man worships the true God. And so these case studies here, they explain for us the concept of individual responsibility for your actions and for your relationship with God. It shows us that a godly man could have an ungodly son, and an ungodly man could have a godly son. Okay, case study one, good man. His son turned out pretty bad, but then his grandson turned out pretty good. God judges each of them individually. You're not cursed or destined to follow in your father's footsteps or your mother's footsteps, you get to choose your own path. And that might seem pretty obvious to us, okay? Because we live in modern times. We, we live in a, you know, our, if you live in America, you have a westernized mindset. We understand that from our legal system. You know, you don't punish the parents for what their kid does and vice versa. Whereas in other countries, that could happen. You know, a parent or a child could be punished for what their family member did. But we know in America we don't do that. And so it seems kind of obvious to us that God would be the same way. Um, Israel had a different system of ethics. They lived in a different time in a different place. And and they thought of sin as more of a collective guilt, kind of a national thing. Um, And that's something that we in the West might not really consider a whole lot. But when it comes to your salvation, there's nothing collective about it. It doesn't matter what group you're part of and, and what that group has done. Your salvation comes down to your own personal decision regarding Jesus. So Israel needed to be taught this fact, because they kind of thrown their hands up and they just kind of said, well, it doesn't matter what I do because everyone around me is acting bad. My parents acted bad. My grandparents acted bad. My king is bad. So the Israelites were just kind of using that as an excuse to not even try, like not even try to get on God's good (laughs) good side. But but here's what you got to remember. It doesn't matter what your family or what your society is doing when it comes to how God sees you. God's not going to judge you based on what the people around you did or what the people who came before you did. God's going to judge you. And Ezekiel 18 is is now correcting this wrong belief that Israel had. It says in verse 19, and we'll read verses 19 and 20, and, and then we'll wrap this up for today. Yet you say, why should not the Son suffer for the iniquity of the Father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So Israel's confused. Well, why wouldn't you punish the, the son for the sins of the father? Whereas we might look at that (laughs) and we'd say the opposite. Why would you punish the son for the sins of the father? So, you know, as I said, Israel has a little bit different ethical system than we do. And, you know, there is a little bit of something to what they thought about collective guilt and and national guilt and all that. You know, there is some biblical basis for that, but that's not what it's talking about uh, whenever it comes to your salvation. That's individual between you and God. People might today wonder... You know, that our issue is not really what Israel had, but people today might wonder, why does God judge sin at all? That's more the ethical problem that people today approach the Bible with. They don't ask, why isn't God judging more? A lot of people want to know, why is God judging at all? I thought judging was, a, you know, a, it's a bad thing to judge, right? And, and and actually, I want to note something on that first. God hasn't really talked about judging anyone in this passage. He's really talked more about just the natural consequences of choosing sin um the consequence of sin is death right the wages of sin is death that why does it call it the wages of sin well that's what sin earns okay so it's the wages of sin and that's death um i don't look at this chapter as god judging us as much as god warning us about this is what's going to happen when you die if you live in rebellion to god it's kind of like this i put mouse traps around my house to catch mice uh i don't put them to catch my child So I warn my child, if you see a mousetrap, don't touch it. Because if you touch it, it could snap on your fingers and it could hurt you. Right? And I don't want my child to be hurt. But here's the thing. I can't realistically watch my kid 24-7. Sometimes he's going to be on his own. Sometimes he might wander into a a room that he's not supposed to be in or open a door he's not supposed to open. And he could see a mousetrap there and he could get curious about it. So what do I do? I warn him. Don't touch mouse traps. Okay, don't ever touch mouse traps because they could snap on your finger and hurt you. Now the threat is not if you touch a mouse trap, I'm going to hurt you. That's not my threat. My threat is that if you touch a mousetrap, trap, the mouse trap is going to hurt you. <laughs> There's a big difference in those two things. And I know some people like to say you know, that God is mean. Christians are mean because of doctrines like eternal hell. But here's what we got to remember. Hell is just what our actions deserve. That's what we bring on ourselves by our sins. And so God is, is I mean, in this chapter I'd say, he's not necessarily judging people, he's warning us that if we live in sin, then we just have hell waiting for us. So just like I warn my kids to stay away from mousetraps, God warns his kids to stay away from sin. He says, the soul who sins shall die. So what's he saying? Stay away from that stuff because it'll kill you. But at the end of the day, we, we each have our own choice. Well, we'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and uh, some personal application of this chapter, but let me just take a moment and remind everybody, please subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't done so yet, <laughs> because it, According to my stats, most of the people who listen are not actually subscribed. And, uh, um, and so I, I'm like, well, I probably need to do what all the other podcasters do and remind you to go up there and hit the follow button or the subscribe button, you know, whatever platform you're listening on. Uh, punch that for me because then you get, the, you get the episodes as they come out. And, uh, you, you know, otherwise you'll probably miss miss them. And so if you have a question on this chapter... You can also leave a comment or shoot us an email. Just depends on what platform you're listening on, like I said. But if you want to send an email, it's in the show notes. It's the email crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be really happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you'd like to hear me tackle in the future. Next time on this podcast, um, I don't know yet if I'll go forward in Ezekiel 18. I kind of want to do some... I have some more to say about taking responsibility for your actions I might do like a short follow-up lesson just on that. Um, but sometime in the next few weeks, we will get back here for the next part of Ezekiel 18. I'm also working on some rapture, rapture-related lessons because I want to cover that topic just a little bit more in depth before we leave it behind. Um, so that's what you can look forward to. Okay, so some closing thoughts for today. Um, Harry Truman had a sign on his desk and it said, the buck stops here. Okay, if you ever heard that phrase before, that's where it comes from. Harry Truman, the sign that he had, the buck stops here. And so what does that mean? I think it relates to a phrase that—I think I used this phrase earlier, passing the buck. What does that mean? Well, that means to pass the blame. And Harry Truman, you know, he became president. He inherited the highest office in the land. So he knew he was taking the most powerful position in the whole United States of America, perhaps even the world— And so he was just going to own that. He wasn't going to lay the blame for any problems that arose on other people. He said, I put it on myself. He put that sign on his desk to say, I'm not passing the blame. I'm not blaming someone else. I'm not passing the buck. The buck stops here. On the other side of that sign, there was another phrase that said, it said, I'm from Missouri. Out of the 45 different presidents that America has had, Harry S. Truman was the one and only president who came from the state of Missouri. And I always remember that because I'm from Missouri too. Um, But here's what I want to ask. Does America need this lesson today? This reminder that the buck stops here, that we are each responsible for ourselves, for our own sins, for our own decisions. You know, I made some references today to this Western versus Eastern mindset um, and how I think this chapter maybe comes a little more naturally to us. But that doesn't mean we aren't having problems in this area um let me let me give you an example here of some things that i was thinking on the past week as i worked on this i don't think there's any american out there who would deny that our country is in a mess that we have economic turmoil we have decaying social conditions we have families falling apart the birth rate is dropping below sustainable levels we have a crisis at our border the fatherlessness rate in this country is out of control. We all agree that there's problems. Many times what we disagree on are the solutions to those problems. But I think all Americans agree these things are problems. But how are we going to get to working forward on this thing? Are we just going to blame past generations again and again? Or are we ever going to just step up and address the issues? So let me run through a few different categories of people that we cannot blame for the mess that we're in. We can't blame the boomers. We can't blame the sexual revolution of the 1960s, okay? I totally agree that the 60s, that might have started us on the path that we're on today. The 60s might have started it, but we have continued down it. Okay? They might have blown out the spending on the national debt, but but look, we're the ones who keep spending. So we can't blame the boomers. We can't blame slavery. You know, slavery's been illegal in this country... For like 150 years. And there, yeah, and yet, more than ever, you hear this phrase, we're still feeling the effects of slavery today. And it's just a bunch of baloney guys, okay? And I'm not saying that that couldn't be true, but when someone says that, they are passing the buck. Let me tell you this. You have way more control over the direction of your life than your ancestors do who lived a century and a half ago. We cannot blame... Slavery or things that happened over a hundred years ago for our conditions today. We can't blame slavery. We can't blame our heritage. People like to say phrases like, "Well, I'm Irish, so that's why I have a drinking problem." You can't do that. <laughs> people say, "Well, I'm Irish, that's why I lose my temper." No, you know, I'm not trying to hate on Irish people today. I'm, just, but you get the idea, right? You can't blame your heritage for. Why you do the things you do. Even, you know, let's say even if you have a genetic predisposition to it, okay? Like drinking or anger. Like those can those can have genetic origins, you know, honestly. It actually can. I believe it's possible. Um, you could have a genetic predisposition to certain sins. I mean, I can totally believe that. Uh, and I can just tell you, as I was a foster parent, as I said, and I saw things and I, I heard about cases all the time where there were kids who had never interacted with their birth parents. And yet they, you know, they meet up years later and they find they have so many things in common, you know, the way that they walk, the way that they talk, the way that they fidgeted with their fingers and and stuff like that. I mean, even if they had never spent any time around their biological parents, there's so much that's just innate and natural that they, that they carried over from that. And genetics are powerful. Um, I I, said, I was talking to my mom recently she was visiting recently and I was talking to her about how I always sneeze in threes and and I was talking about it because I was talking about how the, like, the people at my work will make fun of me sometimes because they always hear me sneeze in groups of three which I never even realized until they pointed it out to me that I'm always sneezing in threes but I guess I do, just something I do and then my mom and she's like a teacher and she tells me that the kids in her class would would tease her, because she would always sneeze in threes. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess it's like genetic, you know? I don't know. I would never have thought something like that would be a biological thing. But here's what I Here's what I find out. There's a lot of biology that influences us. And yet, despite all that, we can't just blame our genetics for our actions. That's not a biblical thing to do. Why? Well, because 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, no temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man god is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it what does that mean that means if you're a christian if you you got the holy spirit inside of you it doesn't matter what your genetics are god is going to give you the power to overcome any temptation at the end of the day it's still our choice so we can't blame our heritage. We can't blame our parents for our problems. That's really what Ezekiel 18 is teaching us. And I, I want to say this, especially to all of, the, all of you who are 20 and 30-year-olds who are listening out there. When, we, you know, when, when we're kids, we have a tendency to think that our parents are just perfect, right? I mean, I see this as a foster parent. Like, no matter what a parent had done to their kids... Many times the kids, they just still thought the world of their biological parents. It didn't matter what the parent had done. It didn't matter how little they were trying. That kid always loved their biological parents. They always just wanted to be back with their biological parents. And, um, you know, that's just something inside of us humans that we, you know, when when we're young, we think that our parents are just the perfect standard. Just whatever they do, everything they do is right. And then, you know, you get into your late teens, early 20s. You start to notice ways that our parents are not perfect. You know, that they have flaws. And that those flaws influenced us sometimes. And sometimes those flaws had negative effects on us. So then we start to blame our parents for our flaws. We start saying it's their fault that we can't do this or that we did do that. But guess what? Once you realize that you have a flaw... You can't just continue blaming your parent for it forever. You know, at some point, you got to take responsibility for that and deal with it yourself. I mean, I'm not saying there's not such a thing as bad parenting, okay? Maybe sometimes we can point to our parents and, and we can use those, their actions to explain why we do certain things today. But you can't just go your whole life using your parents as an excuse for your bad behavior, uh, I, I always remember this quote. I even wrote it in one of my Bibles. It's from John John Bevere. He said, "We can't blame our bad behavior on the wrong actions of others." And and you know that's true. And once you make it to adulthood, it, it's now it's time to own your decisions. So we can't blame the boomers. We can't blame slavery. We can't blame our heritage. We can't blame our genetics, and we can't blame our parents. If America falls, it won't be because of past generations. It's going to be because of what we're doing today. And that's the lesson that Israel had to learn. And it's a lesson that I hope we learn. Because when we shift the blame onto something else, uh, we, you know then we tend to not do anything to fix the problem. But that doesn't get you out of the pigsty. <laughs> that just makes you feel better about being in one. It doesn't matter who dropped you in that pigsty. The question is, are you going to sit in the mud and be dirty the rest of your life? Or are you going to crawl out and wash yourself off? And I listened to a speech recently that was delivered by someone who literally grew up working in a pigsty. Um, The speech was delivered by my speech teacher. I wasn't in class whenever I heard the speech. My speech teacher in college, uh, this was like 15, 20 years ago, but it was Mrs. Wallace. And then she retired from teaching shortly after I took that class. And I'm glad I took her class before she retired because she was a... She was an excellent teacher, and so I saw that recently she was going to be speaking at um, some breakfast in our town, and I was like, "Well, I need to go show up and hear what she has to say because like she was such an excellent speech teacher." I'm like, if she's going to be delivering a speech, it's going to be worth going to hear, and it was. She just shared her life story, and it was there's amazing stuff about her that I never knew. So Mrs. Wallace is of Native American history. She was born in extreme poverty. As she was growing up, she had a family of six or seven or like two parents, six or seven kids. They lived in a two room house and not a two bedroom house. I'm saying she'd lived in a two room house with all those people. Her father was an alcoholic. Her mother had no education. They lived in the, um, they left the house at some point and lived in the back of a big truck that she said her dad just threw a tarp over it. And they lived out of the back of a truck for about three years. And then she and her older siblings, they all worked in a pigsty every day. And they each had their own stall to manage. And she said she made sure that her pigsty was the cleanest pigsty you could find. Now, why is that? Well, she felt like there's a lot of things going on in her life that were out of her control. But there was one thing she could control. And that was her pigsty. So she did the best she could with what she had. She was like 11 years old. And then around that time, She said her father started having a severe problem with his back. Um, Like, I can't remember what kind of disease it was, but the doctors literally took a bone, one of the bones out of his leg, and they put it in his back. And then they replaced the bone in his leg with a metal rod. And that, I mean, listen, I know that sounds like extreme and (laughs) kind of wild. This was like 60 or 70 years ago. So I don't know. Maybe that was just the best they could do back at that time. But Mrs. Wallace, she was describing what she remembered of that moment. And so she was about 11 and she looked at her dad and he's on this hospital bed and she's just like thrashing around sobbing uncontrollably. And she said she's looking at him and seeing that he's in despair because he has no way to take care of his family. The doctor said he'll probably never walk again. And then she remembers looking at her mother her mother who had no education, no special skills, no training. And her mother's now going to have to go to work and also raise and take care of, like I said, six or seven kids. And Mrs. Wallace said she looked at her mother in that moment, and she knew her mother had no options. She looked at her mother's face, and she distinctly remembers that thought. She says, my mother had no options. And what she said, she thought at that moment, Mrs. Wallace, she thought, I never want to be in a position where I have no options. So she could have dropped out of school and just stayed home to help her mom manage the house. But and she she just tried to do it all. And she did. She graduated high school. I think she was like the first person in her family to graduate high school, went to college, first person in her family to graduate college. She got several degrees. She became a department head there at the college where I, where I eventually went. Um, today she's the chief of her native American tribe over in Oklahoma. And she was the first female chief that her tribe had ever had. She's been elected to that four times. Every time she said, it's been a higher majority of the vote that she got each time that they had an election. So I'm at this breakfast. I'm like listening to her talk about her amazing life story. And I, you know, I think about what she said that moment. She said, I never want to be in a position where I have no options. And that moment she decided she's just going to work, you know, work her tail off no matter what she had to do to be as successful as possible in life. And that's exactly what she did. And I couldn't help, but think about how there's so many other people out there who also come from, we might say very humble beginnings, disastrous beginnings in some cases, and they have the complete opposite thought. They just believe, well, I'm never going to amount to anything. My family's poor. Nobody in my family's ever graduated high school. Nobody in my family ever went to college. Why should I bother? I'm starting the race so far behind everyone else. Why even bother trying to catch up? And listen, that, that, that's what so many people, would. I would say the majority of people, that's how they would think. But that's a defeatist mindset. That's a loser mentality. That, that's giving up. Someone who isn't even going to bother to try. And, you know, if that's how you feel, that's exactly what you'll get. You're never going to amount to anything. And if you can blame someone else for your life situation, then you can use that as your excuse not to even try. And if you do that, you're going to stay exactly where you are. Life doesn't get better until you decide to put your foot down and make something of yourself. You won't become what you're not in the process of becoming. And some people are never going to get anywhere good in life because they're not good at anything except making excuses. And Ezekiel 18 tells us that when it comes to God, we can't make excuses because he's going to hold us responsible for ourselves. So I just encourage everybody today, who anybody who hears the sound of my voice, make sure that you're taking ownership of your life and your choices, and especially your eternal life, because that's what Ezekiel 18 is most concerned with. On Judgment Day, I think there'll be two types of people. There's going to be those who've already made peace with God, and they've done that through the redemption that Jesus purchased for us. Okay, those are the righteous. And then I think there's going to be those who are out there making excuses. They're going to be ready, when they stand before God, to blame every other factor in their life other than themselves, for why they didn't submit to Christ and to his Lordship. But Ezekiel 18 says that won't work. Like, I don't know exactly how that judgment's gonna go, but I, I know by the end of it, every knee will bow and every person is gonna have to acknowledge that they were responsible for their choices. It's much better to acknowledge that now while there's still time. There's still time to make a choice. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that the buck stops here and I'm from Missouri.